Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for the joy of being together. We thank you, Lord, so much for saving us, putting us in your family. And as Greg shared earlier, Lord, why the Spirit really is thicker than blood. And we do thank you so much for our physical families. We thank you more so for our spiritual family. Lord, we are in your family, and we're going to spend all of forever together. We bless you for that. Thank you, Lord, for the gorgeous weather you gave us this weekend. Thank you, Lord, for the lake that we could have the baptisms and for even changing the minds of the administration here because earlier they told us we could not have a bonfire on the lake. Thank you that that's where we were able to have it. Thank you, Lord, we've had good food. There's so many people in the world and in this country who don't have hardly any food. We just thank you, Lord, for the beds we had to sleep on, a warm shower to wake up to, whether we only got two hours sleep or four. We just thank you, Lord, for the comforts that you provide for us. We ask you to take now this, these last few moments, really, that we have together, and we ask you to use them in our lives, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want you to write this on your paper. Uh, I'm not going to talk about this, but I just wanted to comment on this. Greg, I, th- I thought you did a fantastic job uh, explaining to them the purpose of the church and what God has for the church. The church is the most important organization in the world. I want you to write that down. The church is the most important organization in the world. There is no more important organization in the world. Why? Because the church has been given the message and the power and the purpose of saving the world. The church has been given the message and the power and the purpose of saving the world. I, this may sound funny to you, and I don't mean it. Um, I don't mean it disrespectfully to God. Of course, I don't, or sacrilegiously. But it's it's God through us who is going to reach the world, not God Himself. He needs the church. He invented the church. He made the church. It's kind of like in the book of Genesis. God gave Adam and Eve a command. Some of you may not know this, but he told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. That was the command God gave them. God does not populate the earth. We populate the earth by starting families, getting married and having children. Now we're in God's family and we're in the church and God wants us to populate heaven. God wants us to give birth to spiritual children. And so the church is that giant family. And then, of course, it it is in clusters. Kind of like there's mankind, there's humankind of all different races. And then there's clusters, male and female clusters all over the world. And, And with the church, you have the giant bodies of Christ. It might be the Baptist, the Evangelical Free, the non denominational the Methodists, the Lutheran, whoever they are, if they love Christ and, and preach the gospel, there are brothers and sisters in Christ. So there's the whole world we're trying to reach, and then there's these clusters of families that have formed, local bodies of Christians that were committed to, that and whichever family you're born into or God has you in, and right now has you in the rock. Well, that's your family. Write this down. The church is God's mission organization to the world. The church is God's mission organization to the world. I don't have time to uh, lay this out to you this morning, but 
Some of you may have heard of the term parachurch organization. There are a lot of parachurch organizations and, and many very good ones doing wonderful works all over the world. But I want you to understand that if the church was genuinely the body of Christ in local New Testament churches being led by plurality of leaders, there really wouldn't be the need for so many of these parachurch organizations because the church would be doing its job of multiplication, of planting and establishing churches. If Christians like ourselves were giving ourselves to the things God wanted us to, and that is your job and God's business, planting churches or helping to establish current churches, we would be reaching the world for Christ. We'd be doing. That's the strategy that God has. The strategy God has is church planting and building then the church that you're in. Building it up strong so that it continues to thrive and have a strong presence for the gospel in any particular city. Many years ago, when Brent and I started Evergreen, you need to know this a little bit because it's your history, it's your roots. When Brent and I started Evergreen 12 and a half years ago, we had a goal, and we're still working on that goal, and that was to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire Twin Cities. Now, beyond that, we also think globally. That's why we've been involved in mission trips. Evergreen has contributed in the last 10 years $1 million to missions. $1 million. We're not a very rich church. A lot of the pastors could have used raises. Million dollars could be you could do a lot of things with a million dollars. We've sent five hundred people on mission trips in the last eight years. So we have a global mission. And we have a global strategy. We also have a local strategy. And we want the Twin Cities to hear a positive, relevant, winsome presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our goal is to have an evergreen type of church within 10 to 12 minutes of every person living in the Twin Cities. Well, the rock is part of that greater vision. Now the rock is going to be taking on a vision of its own as well. I've talked about that with the pastors of rock churches in other places. And so we're kind of like the child that evergreen birthed and that child is going to grow and start businesses and more families of a specific genre, of a specific type. And in the meantime, Evergreen is going to continue to plant more and more churches. We believe that we're going to need about eight more in the next ten years. We have four now, twelve total, hopefully with a thousand or two thousand at every location. And we believe that at that time, and, and hopefully we'll be able to do TV advertisements by then, or at least a proliferation of radio advertisements, that everyone will know about this particular church. Why do I believe in this particular, particular church? Okay, I want to talk to you about that for just a moment. I am personally convinced, and I'm going to talk to you about this this morning, because I'm going to talk about making uh, Christ attractive to the world, all right? how we personally do that. One of the reasons, in my opinion, so many people are not coming to Christ as could is because Christians are so irrelevant. Does that all make sense to you? They're irrelevant. Many of you were on the stage last night, but many of you sitting out there in the auditorium probably thought the same thing. I'm thankful that I had some kind of religious upbringing, but my religious upbringing, for me, actually turned me against the Lord. Actually inoculated me from the real thing. 
Nothing is more deadly to the soul than being bored in church. Than having someone so misrepresent God that you come to the conclusion that God is boring. That God is meaningless. And you sit in the chair as a kid, or maybe as a teen, and you were drugged there, and you're drawn on the back of a piece of paper, and you're dreaming about what you're going to do as soon as you get off, because God, in my view, is being misrepresented all over the country every Sunday. How many would say, I, I would agree with that, I would tend to agree with that. Okay, now, there are certainly... When you look at the whole United States, there are bright spots, bright spots in California of churches, a few that are doing a dynamic job. Bright spots in Illinois, in Chicago, of churches that are doing a dynamic job. Bright spots really all over the country, but they're a small, infinitesimal minority of what we could have if we united together, if we focused our lives, and if we were determined to be a relevant winsome, attractive representation of Jesus Christ. And, um, and I have been trying, to the best of my ability, it's a personal passion of mine, I guess the Holy Grail is to try to convince as many pastors as I can to get with it. To get with it. To realize that, that we have a window of opportunity in America right now. That window of opportunity is that, uh, and it's unlike Germany, in Germany, less than 2% of the population goes to church. In the United States, approximately 48% of Americans go to church. Church is still viewed as an icon in this country. It's still viewed as maybe a relevant place, or maybe a place where I can find some answers. So here's what tends to happen. People go through crises in their lives. A lot of, there was a lot of crisis up on the stage last night. I don't know if you realize that. I've shared this with you many times before. Don't ever forget it. Most people do not come to Christ until they've incurred a sufficient amount of pain. Don't ever forget that. Why? Why is that? Because we're rebellious, arrogant rebels. That's why. Isn't it God hates you? It's that He loves you so much that He's willing to inflict or allow certain pain to come in your life so you don't end up in eternal pain. Understand? You get your choice. You have a little pain now or have pain forever. I'd rather have the little now. By the way, this, that alone, that understanding can help put your whole background and your upbringing into perspective. Turn real quick to Acts. The book of Acts. Acts chapter, I think it's chapter 17. Let's try 17. See what we find there. Because I think that's it. Oh. Acts 17 and verse 24. I wish I had the NIV Bible to read this to you. I'll, I'll kind of semi-quote it from there. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since the Lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't. Since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, He doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve His needs, for He has no needs. He, excuse me, and He Himself gives life and breath to everything, and He satisfies every need there is. For from one man He created all the nations throughout the whole earth. 
He decided beforehand which should rise and which should fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose in all this was that the nations would seek after God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. In the NIV Bible, it says, For God determined the exact times and places that we would live so that perhaps we would reach out to God and find Him. I remember years ago visiting with a young lady who now is just, you know, serving the Lord tremendously. She's a bright spot in our churches. And um, she had a pretty rough family background and it had led her to some serious dysfunction in her own personal life. And and, um, it ended up, her family had to spend thousands and thousands of dollars to try to help her get better and she didn't get better she didn't get better I met her a little Bible study I was having at one of the colleges in the city and and uh, we began a friendship and we began to talk after this Bible study a little bit about her life and kind of you know we just I just took things slow and after a couple weeks I just asked her you know do you really want to get well I mean is wellness something you really want and she said I really want to get well and so I asked questions like um, well, how badly do you want to get well? I mean, do you want to get well enough that, that if I tell you the truth, will you listen or will you run? Would, do you really want to know? Because I told her, I promise you I can help you. I promise you there are answers. But I, I really need to know that you want the answers because some of them, you know, they're not going to be easy to hear. But if you'll deal with them, and trust me, you'll get better. She thought for a moment. She said, I, you know, I, I really would. I, I, I'm, I'm really willing to listen. So one of the first things I told her, which is so true. In fact, I just this came uh, crashing home to me recently in an article in the paper about Lawrence Phillips. Some of you maybe do or do not know Lawrence Phillips, but he was a, I think he was the Heisman Trophy winner for the uh, Nebraska. But anyway, he was a tremendous running back. And uh, but of course, his life's kind of a mess. His personal life, and he beat up his girlfriend, drug her a couple, down a couple flights of stairs by the hair, and. And, uh, you know, everybody makes mistakes. That's a pretty big mistake to make. And it seemed like it was a recurring problem in his life. And then he got uh, in the NFL and people took some chances on him. And he really screwed up those chances big time. So he spent the last year in uh, the Canadian or European Football League. In the meantime, he came to Christ. And... um, And one major step, and it was in this article the other day, he said, you know what? Lawrence Phillips has always blamed everybody else for Lawrence's problems. I was the cause of my problems. No one made me get angry. I don't have an excuse because my father left me when I was six and I was stuck in an orphanage and I went from one foster home to the next. He said, I used to tell myself those were my excuses for my rage. There aren't any excuses. I realized I need to take responsibility for me. And I remember telling this young lady... No one has put a gun to your head and made you walk into a bathroom and throw up. You've done this to yourself. You're continuing to do this to yourself. And if you do, you're killing yourself. And for a brief moment, there was a flash of unbelievable rage and hate in her eyes to me. And I just kept looking right at her. She kind of looked down the table and said, nobody's ever had the guts to say that to me. I said, I don't think anybody's cared about you enough. I care about you. And I want to change your life. But you've got to accept responsibility today for where you're at. Not for ten years ago, what happened to you, what family did to you, but today. He said, do you understand that? 
No one made you go in the bathroom and do this. You have decided based on your perspective on your life that that's how you're going to deal with life. Now we need to change that or you're going to die. And she was very close to it at the time I met her. Um, I said the second thing that you must understand is that if you're going to blame anybody for the family that you have, you're going to have to blame God. And let's just be totally honest about it. You're going to have to get mad at God, not your dad. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean, God gave him to you. And I opened this passage to her, and we went over this passage. God gave you the family you had. And I said, now I want you to understand why. So I looked at her and I said, I have a question. Would you say that it's been this background of yours that has brought you to the point where you really want Christ? She said, oh, without question." I said, so answer this question for me. Would you rather have died a beauty queen and gone to hell? Or would you rather have to struggle with anorexia and bulimia and as a result of this struggle, come to Christ and He can get you over the problem anyway and you're going to go to heaven? She said, geez, I never, ever, ever thought about it like that before. So, well, that's the truth. Psychologists won't tell you that. I'll tell you that. I'm not a psychologist. I'm a pastor. I'm a doctor of your soul. I've read a real interesting article recently written by a psychologist in an editorial page. And he said, face it. He said, basically what we are is doctors of the soul. Doctors of the soul just don't get paid very much, so we took up psychology. Except he wasn't a Christian. He wasn't a pastor. God knows how to solve the problems of your soul and your emotions. And God knows how to put your past into proper and complete perspective. You're not some deformed, you know, victim. God, God, has was Joseph a victim? Joseph was one of 13 children and his father played favorites. And because of it, Joseph's brothers hated him because he was daddy's favorite. And they threw him in a hole and they talked about killing him. And at 17 years old, they sold him to some country as a slave. Did Joseph fall apart? Was his life ruined because of it? No, and here's why. Here's the only reason why. Because Joseph came to the conclusion, God is orchestrating my life for something great. And so as Joseph was in prison, and listen, you think your life was difficult? Whenever I start thinking life's difficult, I read the life of Joseph. I have a whole book at home actually on the life of Joseph. And I read it over frequently. Not only was Joseph abandoned by his family, sold off thousands of miles away into another place. Joseph was sold in the auction block to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife had the hots for Joseph. Don't know the reasons. Maybe Potiphar was never home. Maybe he was too devoted to Pharaoh. Maybe he had some Egyptian mistresses. I do not know. But here's this 17-year-old boy and Potiphar's wife is regularly enticing him for sex. And every time he walked away, and every time he said, I cannot dishonor God, I cannot dishonor my master, and he walked away. Finally, one day, he was in a room because he was a household servant. That was his job. She was in the room and she threw herself at him, grabbed him, and he fled, which is really what you have to do. And it took his cloak off. 
which probably just left him in his whatever they wore those days for underwear. And she's so scorned, she's so upset that she could not seduce him that she begins to scream, rape, rape, rape. That's basically what she did. Who's going to believe a Jewish slave? And so Joseph spends the next 13 years of his life for doing the right thing. If I'd have been there, you'd have been there, you might have thought, geez, you know, I shouldn't be here to begin with. My brother's a scum. They sold me here. So I'm going to get whatever I can get. She wants to sleep with me. I'm going to get it. Joseph didn't do that. Joseph loved God. He honored God. In other words, another thing you need to understand about Joseph as a young man is that he was completely focused on the promise of God because if there was the slightest hint of discouragement on Joseph's part relating to his circumstances, he would have had sex with her. Because that's what discouragement leads you to do. It leads you to sin. Because you have a raunchy perspective about life. Joseph did not. He had a settled perspective. He wasn't cursing his luck. He wasn't, you know, when I get out of here, I'm killing my brothers. I'm going to rip their faces off. I cannot believe God is... He wasn't bitter at God either. Because when you're bitter at God, you also give in to those kinds of things. Instead, Joseph held on to God. He held on to what he knew was right. All by himself, without even fellowship. Without even the indwelling Holy Spirit. So no one can tell me that when you get saved and you get the Holy Spirit and you got a body of Christians that you cannot possibly heal. That's crap. Joseph had neither. He's all alone and he does not have the Holy Spirit living in him. The Comforter as the Bible refers to him. So here's Joseph holding on to the promise for 13 years. But it gets tougher. About year eight, actually he's been there about eight years. Everyone's forgotten about it, but Joseph was faithful in prison, so faithful they entrusted him with the keys. These two guys end up cellmates. One's a baker, one's a wine taster. They have these dreams. Joseph interprets their dreams. Says the one guy, well, sorry to tell you this, you know, you're going to be beheaded. The other guy, uh, you're going to be let go. You're going to be back in the favor of the king. Wow, the guy's all bright and smiling. And Joseph says, would you do me a favor? When you get out and you go back to the king, would you let him know, I'm down here wrongly. Help me out. Oh, I'd do anything for you, Joseph. You just give me so much encouragement. You're just so wonderful. I love you, Joseph. You know, you'll have friends like that. And then, then he leaves. Totally forgot about Joseph. For five more years. Five or, yeah, five more years. And then one day, the king has this dream. All of a sudden, the, the wine taster goes, oh my gosh, wait a minute. There was a guy, I was in prison, and he, we had a dream. You remember King when, ooh, I hate to remind you this, but you threw me in prison in the baker too, and you killed him, but you let me live? Yeah, I remember that. It's a big event in our lives. He interpreted my dream and told me it would happen. He can interpret yours. Joseph gets out. He goes from prison to palace, just like that. He goes from being a little prison scumbag to second in command of all of Egypt. Just like God told him. And then you know what happens? The great famine happens. And Joseph's about 40 years old now. So that would be 23 years from the time that he was in Egypt, sent by his brothers. And guess who shows up looking for food? His brothers. They don't know it's him. Finally, he reveals himself. And the Bible says literally that their, his brother's knees were knocking together. They were so frightened because they knew Joseph could have him killed. 
And you know what Joseph does? He starts weeping and he grabs them all and he starts kissing them. And he says, don't be upset at yourself. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. Don't you ever forget that phrase. Don't burn that phrase on your mind. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. What others intend to do evil in your life, God will turn it for good. Always. And because Joseph had that perspective, he was solid emotionally and psychologically. He did not bear the scars of his childhood in his adult life. Christ is the healer. Christ can heal your spirit. Christ can heal your soul. But you must be willing. As this young lady, I was just so touched last night when she said, you know, I forgave my mother and father. Forgive. Let go. Let go and forgive her. You'll never heal. And the way you do that is by just coming to these wonderful convictions that, Lord, you had your hand on my life. You've always had your hand on my life. How do I know that? Because you're God's chosen little child. You wouldn't be here if you weren't chosen by God. And so God's had your whole life mapped out, your birth mapped out, where you would be conceived mapped out, all of it. Psalm 139 says, He fearfully and wonderfully made you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. You were not an accident. You were not a mistake, even though your parents may think you were an accident or you were a mistake. Or maybe they weren't even married when you were conceived. You're God's child. You're God's kid. Revel in that. Revel in your future. And now, leave that past behind. The Bible says in Isaiah 43, 18, Do not call to mind the former things, nor ponder things of the past. For behold, I will do something new. Will you not see it? Now it springs forth. As long as you have your eyes back here, you never see the new thing God has for you out here. And so it's time, take your eyes off that past. It's time to make peace with, thank you, Lord. And so you know what I told this young lady? I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home, call your dad on the phone, because she particularly had real animosity towards her father. And there were certainly justifiable reasons. I want you to understand that. I'm not saying that many of you in this room have not been hurt by someone uh, that you could have been able, should have been able to trust in your life. You were. We've all been hurt, some of us more deeply than others. But I said, I want you to call him, invite him over for dinner. And I want you to tell him these things. And when you say, Dad, I want you to know that I realize you were a gift from God. That God gave me to you as my father for special reasons. And I want to ask you to forgive me for what I put you and Mom through. You see, because most of you, you don't, you don't realize this because you're not a parent. Parents aren't perfect. A lot of them are pretty bad, actually. But I, I told this young lady, I said, do you think it was fun when he took $40,000 out of his retirement and paid for your treatment? Do you think it was fun to see his little girl, 80 pounds, looking like she come out of Auschwitz with a fork lodged in her throat because she tried to throw up and got the fork stuck? Do you think that was fun? Do you think that was pleasant? I'm a dad. It wasn't fun. And it wasn't pleasant. And he felt powerless to do anything about it. Yep, maybe he was a bad dad. But you weren't an angel of a child either. And so, whether he ever asked for forgiveness or not, you go, you go, and you make peace. 
Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed, happy are the peacemakers because they will be called children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will inherit the earth. Peacemakers win. We're the winners. You make peace, you win. You stay bitter, you stay hateful, you stay malicious, you stay vengeful, and you lose. No one else loses, you lose. You lose. All you need for your psychological health and well-being is right here in this book. Everything you need is right here in this book. I can help you discover that, but it's right here in this book. God is the healer. But sometimes the healing process of our lives involves choices that we have to make and how we think. Choices in letting go of those who hurt and instead blessing them. You know, God has done a wonderful, incredible work in this young lady's life and her family. All three of these kids in this family are involved in our church. Two of them are married to pastors. The third probably will be married to one. She is married to him, but I'm sure he will become one. And I love him dearly. There is no excuse, brother and sister, for you not to be able to get well. God wants you well. He wants you well. He wants you confident about your life because of Him. See? And even if you know what? Even if you didn't have a family, well, you have one now. And you have God as your Father, and you have the best daddy in the world. I don't ever want you to forget that. Stone, you've got, you, brother and sister, you've got to work over your mind, okay? You've got to work over your mind. I live in the reality of these things every day of my life. I go over them. I don't even need notes for them. I go over them and over them and over them and over them. You've not been scarred. God has allowed you to have hurts in specific areas of your life for your greater effectiveness in your future. In your future. What we curse... God blesses. God blesses. The things that we feel weak in, those are the points of great power in your life. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and I'm going to shorten the other things that I want to share with you this morning. I guess the reason I felt led to share that with you today, um, I actually would like to do a whole conference on this sometime or maybe a series. But for those of you that would like help specifically in this area, I'd like to encourage you to get the Renew Tapes now, you can order them at the rock, but they might have evergreen labels on them. But they deal with this whole process. But the reason it's so critical is because until you stop looking inward and start looking outward, until you, instead of looking back at your life going, wow, it's just so awful, wow, I'm just so broken, instead you take the perspective, wow, Lord, you guided it, you led it, you allowed certain things in my past and in my life for good. What will happen is the devil will always have an ace on you to pull out of the deck. And it's called your past. And he'll guilt you over it or make you mad over it or make you bitter over it or make you resentful over it, thereby short-circuiting your effectiveness for God. And that's his goal. So you need to face the past and deal with the past with a positive and confident biblical perspective. And then you will be able, and only then, to attain the future that God has for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 11. Knowing therefore, I'm going to read this again from the little Berkeley New Testament. Knowing therefore what it means to revere the Lord, we seek to win people over. 
I've underlined that in my Bible. Another version says, knowing what it is to fear God, we seek to persuade men to Christ. The Bible says in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord, what does that mean? It means you're afraid of God? Not at all. It means you have a deep, abiding respect for God. And you know that what he says goes, and you know that his word will come true. The Bible says heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So, knowing what it is to fear God, if we fear God, we will obey him. If we fear God, and we understand there's heaven and hell, we will do everything we can to win people over to the truth. We'll do everything we can to win Christians over to the truth for their life, and we do everything we can to win non-Christians over to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our motives are clear to God, and I hope they are made clear as well to your conscience. This is no repeated recommendation. Excuse me. This is no repeated condemnation, commendation of ourselves to you, but it is providing you with an incentive to feel proud of us so that you may reply to those who are proud of a person's position and not of his heart. I like that. We're not proud of a position. I'm proud of your hearts. And what was happening in Paul's time was these false apostles, they would come behind Paul and they would brag about all their knowledge and try to put Paul down. And so Paul was writing back to his dear family, the Corinthians, saying, I want to give you a reason to be really confident in me. And the reason is because I, I fear God. It doesn't matter what person says their position is or what they are in the temple or what they are in the political stratosphere. All that matters is their heart. And God knows my motives. You know what? I always find comfort, Christian. But God knows the motives of your heart. He knows the motives of your heart. And others may misjudge them, but God will not. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are thoughtful, it is for you. For the love of Christ lays hold of us and brings us to this conclusion. One died for all, so they all died. And he died for all, so that all who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose for them. What could be clear about what God wants for our life? He died and rose so that those of you who live through Christ will no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again. Consequently, from now on we think of no one just in terms of human nature. Even if we had thought of Christ in that way, we no longer know him just in term, these terms. Accordingly, if anyone, you might want to underline this in your Bible if you've never, never read it before. It's a wonderful truth. Accordingly, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and new things have come. This, this verse right here has helped me so much in my marriage. The reason I say this is because that's my most intense relationship. It's helped me in all my relationships, but it's particularly helped me in my marriage. Because I always remind myself when difficult things happen with Kathy, and they're not often, but they happen, that's not the real Kathy. That's the old Kathy. That's not the real Kathy. The real Kathy loves the Lord. The real Kathy loves me. The real Kathy loves Christ's word. The real Kathy wants to obey God. That's the real Kathy. And I keep recognizing her according to the new person, not the old person. You know why? Because if you start focusing on the old person, pretty soon you want a new car. I mean, you want a new person. Pretty soon you get tired. You get fed up. Paul says here we don't recognize people in human terms. I don't recognize people now, oh, you're in the flesh. When, when I was, uh, you know, I know Jay and Greg very well. I know Chad 
very well. I know Dan a little, a little more. I'm getting to know him a little more and more all the time. But I personally went and approached each of those guys to become part of the Rock staff and approached Greg years ago to consider coming on staff. Now, I, I know things about those guys that you don't because I've been their spiritual dad. Things I'll never tell you. Things that are probably no different than any of you. I had confidence in them, not because I thought they were so perfect, or because they had no flaws, but because God is in them, and I see them as the new men God has made them to be. And I believe in them. I believe in them. And I will continue to believe in them. Even if everything doesn't happen just according to how I think it ought to happen. doesn't matter. That is one of the things, that is one of the greatest gifts that I've been able to give those men. Is my confidence in them. My confidence that God is working in them. And God wants to work through them. And this is one of the most powerful tools that you can have in discipling people. Do you believe in them? Or will you continue to see them as the old person who does hurtful things and says hurtful things and, you know, they always have to live up to certain standard in your mind. That's not how Christ thinks of you. And God wants you to think of others the way God thinks of you. He wants you to treat others the way God treats you. Anyway, but all these things have come from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, which is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against us and committing to us the message of reconciliation. On behalf of Christ, we are God's ambassadors. God, as it were, is making his appeal through us. Okay, I, I'm just going to give you a few brief comments this morning. I actually have a whole lot and I'm, I don't have time. I'm going to let you go because I can tell you're exhausted. Okay, and uh, so let me just give you a couple brief things. You are God's personal representative. You represent God. Another way I put it is you are God's sales force. The people that you meet will never meet Jesus. They will meet you. They aren't going to have a personal encounter with the Savior, not in the way that the early disciples did, because He's not on the planet. The closest they're going to get is you. How many of you have ever talked to someone about the Lord, they're non-Christian, and they've made a comment like this, you know, Christianity, let me say this, I knew someone once who's a Christian, if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it. How many have ever heard a comment like that? Now look around the room, keep your hand up. Look around the room, now put your hand back down. My point is this, the number one reason people do not come to Christ is because of somebody who they knew said they were a Christian. That's the number one reason why. It's our job to change it. And I just speak in business terms with you. We have a credibility problem in the industry. A major credibility problem in the industry. And the only ones who can solve the credibility problem is us. Billy Graham can't solve it for us. Jerry Falwell can't solve it for us. He's got his own problem. Pat Robertson can't solve it for us. He's got his own issues. We are going to have to solve it in our area in Minneapolis. We're going to have to solve it. And the way we do that is by taking seriously the fact that we represent God. So you ask yourself this question. What will people think of God because of me? What will people think of God 
because of me. What will they think? Our goal, our goal, okay? This, this is kind of the mission statement of our life. This brings, and I, I want to show you how this brings everything together in our life, is to make Christ attractive to the world. That's our goal. That's our mission statement. Now, there, now, now we go about it with a specific strategy, and of course we need to get the gospel of the world, we plant churches, that's all part of it. But on a day-to-day basis, when you're in your classroom, when you're at your job, when you're at the gas station, when you leave the restaurant, when you're at the grocery store, this mission statement brings purpose and focus and single-mindedness to all human endeavor, which is basically everything we do involves human beings. And that is, it makes you stop and think, wait a minute, wait a minute, how am I acting? How do I look? How am I appearing? How does Jesus look on me right now? So you ask yourself this question, how do we make Christ attractive to the world? Okay, I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to do it quickly, but first of all, remember we're in a people business. Most of Jesus' ministry involves strangers. Most of Jesus' ministry involves strangers. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, but the word hospitality doesn't mean having your friends over for dinner. That's an American, maybe the word is euphemism, that's an American definition of it, and that's being hospitable. But biblical terms, the word hospitable meant lover of strangers. That's why the Bible says that one of the qualifications for an elder in the book of Timothy and Titus is hospitable. Literally meaning lover of strangers. Nothing would be more pathetic than a pastor that doesn't care about people. Right? That'd be pretty bad. Because that's what we're in. We are in the ultimate people business. Everything we do involves people. We make Christ attractive by being attractive ourselves. Get it? We make Christ attractive by being attractive ourselves. Now, I mean that probably different than what you think, but what ways can we become attractive? I want you to turn to Titus really quick. Do you have to see this verse in Titus? Titus chapter 2 and verse 9. If you think about the rock for a moment, if you think about what you've discovered at the rock, everything that we're doing at the rock, when, when Greg and Chad and Dan and I and Jay and the, and the core group of people, when we were meeting seven months before the rock ever started, these people were giving up their time to meet, to pray, to prepare. Everything you do when you come to that, that Saturday night service is meant to be attractive to you. Did you know that? Like the sound, the way the musicians appear, the way they play, the way they perform, the way the music is done, the volume of the music, the way the layout of the facility is, the way that we dress, the way that I dress, the way that the food's done. It's all meant to be enticing. Does that make sense? It's all meant to be a warm wonderful, exhilarating experience. Now, could we do it differently? Sure we could. Sure we could. Let's think about the rock differently for a moment. Greg and I, we decide we really want to try to reach young people. 
So, we decided to start this church called The Rock and teach the Bible to people because they need the Bible. And so, we stand down on the street corner and hand out black and white literature that says, Judgment is coming. Turn to Jesus now. Come to The Rock Mission House. And we're standing out there in our little suits and ties and white shirts. 1980 version. And you show up at our meeting facility. And uh, there's an organist up on front. Shall we gather at the river? The beautiful, the beautiful. Bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing. Bringing in the sheaves. Turn with me, if you would, in the Scriptures today to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 17. Thus the Lord saith unto Moses, Go to Pharaoh and tell him, Let my people go. Hallelujah. You know what I'm saying? Then you walk out afterwards, there's no refreshments and there's no rocks and there's no smiling people to greet you. You love the rocks, I know you do. Okay? And there's no dim lights that Kathy and Jim went out and bought and they show up every week, especially in the winter, and block off the ugly fluorescent lights so we can have a little lighting atmosphere in that room. Just harsh fluorescent lights and you're just standing there and no one says hi to you. No one comes up and says, wow, it's great to have you. What's your name? How many have been to churches like that? That's why you're here. Because the rock looks good. And the rock feels good. And we bust our butts to make it that way. That's ex- We work hard to be attractive. And I work hard to be attractive both personally, in my own life, and in my relationships with people, and then in the way messages are done and presented. So it's real to you. It makes sense. You know one of the, one of the most often comments people will say to me, when I've done conferences, they're all, you know, I, they'll go, Mark, it was just so real. In other words, I could just, it hit me. I could relate to that. It was like, you were on this big pedestal. You're just one of us. That's right, I'm just one of you. I may be a little ahead in my walk, that's all. I'm just one of you. It's all deliberate. It's all well planned out so that you will have the best chance of embracing what is sometimes, as one young man was saying the other night, the hard stuff that we have to say once in a while. It's a lot easier to swallow when it's flavored cherry. You still have to swallow the medicine. You're still going to have to hear, hear, hear hard things at the rock. People are going to still have to turn from their immorality. We're trying to do the best we can to do what it says right here now in Titus, okay? Titus chapter 2 and verse 9. Slaves must obey their masters and do their best to please them. This is very powerful if you understand this. I want to comment in just a moment. They must not talk back or steal, but they must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. They will make the teaching... Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. Now, I want to I comment on this verse. This is very powerful if you understand it. 
The Bible, nowhere in the scriptures advocates slavery. Anywhere in the scripture. Doesn't advocate it. It makes allowance for the fact that human beings are so degraded that it will happen from time to time, and it has happened throughout history. Actually, if you study world civilization, it's happened to every people group in the world. Irish, Germans, Africans, Chinese, Russians. All over the world, in different courses of history, there's been slavery. It was happening in Paul's day. And it was a horrendous thing, okay? But here's what's interesting. The Roman Empire, of course, if you've never studied ancient history, the Roman Empire ruled with an iron fist. You did not rebel. It was not elect Caesar by popular vote. There was no way you changed the Roman Empire except one. Through the power of the living gospel lived out in your life. And Paul and the Christians actually brought the Roman Empire to its knees. You know how? By submitting to it. They submitted to it. And did you know this? The early church in Jerusalem numbered approximately 80,000 people. And 80% of them were slaves. 80% of them were slaves. And so Paul is writing here with that issue going on. See, Christ really sets us free. Realize that real freedom comes from Jesus Christ. And we may think, and you may look at America, and you may go, wow, we just have so much freedom. Actually, there's a lot of slavery in America today. We just don't call it that. People, number one, are enslaved to their passions. And it's killing them. Number two, the borrower becomes the lender's slave. And most Americans are completely owned by the bank and the credit card companies. And they are under major stress every day of their life because of it. It is slavery. But Paul said to the slaves, him being, notice by the way, have you ever noticed how Paul always refers to himself in the epistles? Paul, a bond slave. Paul, a slave. In other words, I'm one of you. I am a slave too. Paul was beaten far more than most slaves were. Paul was stoned. Paul was rioted on. He was God's slave. And he continued to set the pace and he submitted. And so he said, look, look. Here's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal, this life's going to end. We may be a slave or we may be a king, but this life's going to end. Let's make, let's live our life to make the teaching of Christ attractive to other people. And you know how we do that? We do that by submitting to the institutions that are above us. We submit. So, the reason I wanted to go to this verse is because some people have said, Mark, where did you get that stupid little mission statement? That isn't biblical. Right here, the word attractive, it's right there in your Bible, isn't it? Attractive. I want you to know, I try. Try, and you can listen to my tapes to find out, to be 99.999% accurate. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not blowing smoke. This is biblical. God wants us to make the teaching of Jesus Christ attractive. Romans 15.2, go there really quick. It says... Should have put my little bookmark in it. You really need to see these verses because all these principles are tied to Scripture. Verse 2, we should please others. If we do that, it helps them. We will build them up in the Lord. For even Christ did not please Himself. Now I want to explain what this means. It doesn't mean we don't have personal preferences. It doesn't mean you can't have your favorite music and it might differ from someone else's favorite music. 
what Paul is getting at, and what he's getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 9, is that when we're trying to reach a world for Jesus Christ, the goal is to be pleasing to them in such a way that they will want to know you and then ultimately want to know your Savior. I've learned this little life lesson. Most people who respond to you socially will end up responding to Christ. If they like you, often they'll end up getting saved. If they don't like you, then there may be someone else they connect with or they probably won't come to know the Lord. It's your fault. It's just the way it goes. We should do our best to be pleasing to lost people. To please means to give pleasure, to satisfy, to be kind. It means enjoyable. It means a look or manner that is enjoyable. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through some things really quick. Just I can't comment on these like I did recently at another conference because I don't have time. So if you can just write them down, most of them are self-explanatory. Here are some ways to be pleasing to other people. Smile. Smile a lot. Some of you have great smiles. Others of you have great smiles you never use. Use them. Use them. I don't care if you're paranoid about your teeth. Don't worry about it. You rate, when you smile, when you smile, it sends such a warm greeting to other human beings. And God wants us to smile. Try to do your job with a smile. Practice answering the phone. When my children were little, I used to practice with a play phone before I ever let them answer the real phone. Because I've always worked out of my home and I've always taught them that they're, we're on this mission together. And just dad, we're on it together. You have to be able to answer pleasantly and take a note because these people are important and their problems are important. So we'd sit at the kitchen table and I'd go ring, ring and he'd pick up the phone. I'm, I'm, I'm not joking about it. I'm very serious about this. With every one of them. All four of them. I've had people, I've had hundreds of people say to me, who was that that just answered the phone? Is that like your wife? Or your secretary? No, that was my eight-year-old daughter. And they're stunned. It's just kind of a stunned silence. For most of you, this just kills me. I'm going to be honest with you. Hello? Hello? You, I'm talking to a brother or sister. You know, you call. Hello? Or you call the phone machine. Yeah, leave a message. Beep. Are we in a people business or what, folks? This is not like your life. This is God's life. We represent God. Now, you might be a young lady. I realize some ladies don't want to say their name because, and, you know, they only leave the number in case of some weirdo guy. Uh, you know, that's fine. I'll give you a little space there. We can answer the phone. Hello, this is Mark. I, I, identify who in the world I'm talking to. Practice phone manners. Practice projecting positive joy and warmth through those optic cords all over the city. Okay? Do it. Do it out of obedience to Christ. Do it. My gosh, I don't care if you're a people person or not. You came to Jesus, He's going to make you a fisherman. You've got to develop some people skills. You've got to. Some of you have them more because it's gifting of, of God. Some of you... Have a, maybe it's more your temperament or personality. And some of us, and myself included, I've really had to work hard at developing warmth and positiveness and uh, kindness. Number two, greet people warmly. Greet people warmly. You know, have you ever gone up to people, you know, and you walk up to, and you say, Hello, how are you? And you just say, Go, man. 
just kind of hang out their hand. You know, or they, or they don't even look at you. They just kind of ignore you. No, don't do that. Be a warm person. You don't have to kiss them, you know. You don't have to run up and throw yourself at them. But you can project warmth. Greg's very good at projecting warmth. You just, you meet him, you just, you just, you want to get to know him. Number three, speak clearly. Don't mutter. Uh Open your mouth and talk. We have this culture that for some reason, talk. Be articulate. Did you know this? Do you know if you never develop articulateness, you'll never really advance in your job anyway? no matter who you are. There's this raging debate about bilingual education. I don't care how many languages you learn. I'm fine with learning as many languages as you want. You better master the English language. You better learn to speak clearly if you want to succeed. And if your teachers don't have the guts in this politically correct, crappy society to tell you that, you better learn to talk English well. Learn to speak clearly. Learn to say what you mean. Learn to greet people. Because it will help you in life. And besides, it'll help win people to Christ. And that's our ultimate goal. Number four, look people in the eye when they talk to you. Look people, look at their face. I'll tell you a story. And again, you probably, after I tell you some of the stories, you're going to be glad I wasn't your, your parent. But I never tolerated my children when they were very little. You know how little kids can be? Adults are attracted to little kids, right? Have you ever noticed that? You just, you see a little kid and you just want to like pinch their cheek and you just want to talk to them. Have you ever gone up to a little kid and a little kid goes, walks behind mom and grabs their leg and hides from you? Anybody ever have that happen? That is so pathetically rude. That is so pathetically rude. I I would not allow my children to do that. And I told them that. And I disciplined them if they did it. When they got home, I disciplined them if they did it. You know what I used to tell them? And I'm talking, you know, I don't mean just shyness. I help children get over their shyness. But there's no excuse for being, we got to get over that. I used to tell them, Listen to me, Celeste and Jeremy. God died for that person. Don't you ever treat them so rudely again. Christ paid for that person. You know something about my children? If you met all four of them, all four of them, I got two boys, two girls, so I've, I've had both. I got all different temperaments. Every one of them are warm and friendly and outgoing to people. It isn't about temperament. It's about how you're trained. It's about how you train yourself. People are the most important thing on the planet. Treat them like they are. Treat them like the treasure that God considers them. Do you understand what I'm saying? I don't care if you're a chemist or you work with computers all day. When there's a person around, pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention to who you're talking to. Number five, practice good manners. Say please. Say thank you. This is a habit I make when I'm in a restaurant. I don't care if the person just giving me water. I say thank you. If I'm asking for water, then I'm paying for it, leaving this huge tip and paying this astronomical amount of money. And sometimes we treat them like our, they're our slaves, don't we? I say, could you please uh, bring me some, some of that bread? Do you have any of that? And I always try to do it with a smile. I always try to be uh, a better tipper than you know normally I should be. Now, we've got a couple waitresses down here and people in the service industry, okay? Practice good manners. Number six, radiate and glow. I, I shared this with you recently, so I won't go into it a lot, but Sean Mullins has a song, and it goes, Born to shimmer, born to shine, born to radiate. I love the song. Memorize that little line. Born to shimmer, born to shine, born to radiate. That's what you were born to do. 
Radiate the love of Christ. Radiate the glow of the Holy Spirit in your life. You do that with a smile. You do that with warmth. You do that with sincerity. You do that with genuineness. You do that with facial expression. You do that when you come in contact with other human beings. Number seven, be joyful and positive. Be joyful and positive. Yeah, but let me go back to number six a minute. You know what I was talking about, like radiating? I don't know if I told you this before. But let me give you the classic example of someone who's radiant. A bride at her wedding. I've been to hundreds of them. They always radiate. And not because they're in white. They could be in black. They could be in red. Their face, you just can't wipe the smile off their face. You often see this when they get a ring. It happens before they even get married. All of a sudden, there's, I don't know, burdens have been lifted from their life. All of a sudden, there's like a new inner energy because this ring is on their finger. Rings never did nothing for me. But, but for a woman, rings are kind of special. Especially a diamond. And they just kind of... And they, their hands carried a little bit differently. And they walk up to a friend and they go, Hi. So, how are you? It's hilarious. And like, and like five or six girls gather around and go, Oh, so excited. That is so beautiful. So beautiful. It's like a million other rings out there. How can you tell the difference? Oh, but she can tell the difference, you know. She knows the difference. I've asked my wife so many times, Honey, you want a new ring? I, I was so poor back then. Dad, you want a different ring? Oh, Mark, I love this ring. It's, just, it's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's me and you and God in the middle. I said, Okay, Kathy, whatever it means. I, you know, okay, there's cooler rings than that. No, I want this ring. Okay. I'm glad. I guess I'm glad, you know, that she's still excited about her ring. And our life together, okay? Number eight, be helpful. Be helpful. Um, I want to share a quick story with you. When, when my kids were smaller, Kathy's health was not very good, and so every Monday I would go grocery shopping, especially with Celeste and Jessica. And uh, we would go to Cub Food off Cliff Road in Egan. We'd always go there, and I'd always look for the same checkout line for this one checkout lady, just short, blonde hair, and her name was Penny. And we'd always go through her line as often as we could. And we'd always say hello. And she was always just taken aback by my kids. You know, when they were small and they are just, they were different than other kids because, you know, they weren't screaming and yelling and grabbing every piece of candy on the shelf as you went by. That's different. That's unusual. So we'd have conversations as she was checking out and she was always glad to see. She found out I was a pastor and on and on and on. About three years ago, she started coming to Evergreen. And now she's a... Uh, teaches in our Sunday school. And she said, you know, Mark, the reason I come to Evergreen is because you guys would always go through this line and you were always just so kind and thoughtful to me. Well, one day when I was in this line, I'm standing there and there's this woman in front of me and uh, her baby throws up. The projectile type, you know. Blah! All over her, all over stuff. Now, I, I deal with most things well, but not vomit. Vomit's real hard. I can deal with diarrhea, dirty diapers, because I have a system. You just use the disposable type, you open it up, you go, boom, boom, fold it over, boom, there's none on you. It's a beautiful thing. But vomit's completely different. And uh, so I'm standing there with my girls, and I'm, oh, I'm, I'm thinking, oh, Lord, help me. You know, and how can I, I'm thinking, how can I be a light? So I reached in my pocket, and I had 50 cents, and I said to Jesse, I said, Jesse, go, this was, about, this was a toddler. So I said, why don't you run over to the pop machine there and get a 7-Up? So she did. I deployed my little troops, is what I did. I said, Celeste, how about you run to the bathroom, get a bunch of wet paper towel and a couple dry ones. So she went off and did that. 
you know, lickety-split, they're right back. And I'm giving this pop to this lady's little child, and uh, to her, and, and uh, I'm, you know, giving her the cloth. I, I'm sorry, I didn't wipe it up myself, but I, I helped provide for her the tools necessary. And um, she just was stunned. She just stood there for a moment, and then she put her baby, and, you know, he held the little can, and... And she reached in her pocket to pay me back. And I said, man, you don't have to pay me back. My goodness, it's 50 cents. I, I have children and I know how uncomfortable this was. She almost started to cry right on the spot. Just, you know how tears, people's eyes start to glisten. And it's just, she's fighting them back. She said, that was, man, I just can't believe you'd do something like that. How long does something like that take? Just a few seconds and you've made an impression. Now, I got one more story for you and this is the best one. Um, this is about five years ago and I was in McDonald's. And I was uh, there that morning drinking some orange juice and reading the paper, looking for a quiet place. And in walks this woman with six kids, rowdy kids, really obnoxious kids, the kind I really don't like. And they're, you know, grumbling and whining. And I didn't know if they were her kids or if like she was a daycare person. I wasn't sure. I could tell she was frazzled. It was, you just had the look of, oh, I'm going to lose in any minute. These kids... And, of course, she hadn't gotten their food yet. And that's pretty complicated when they're all under six and you've got to go get food. So I could tell that she was about to lose it. So I got up and I said, excuse me, ma'am. And I, I don't usually do this, but I introduced myself. I said, I'm a pastor. The reason I did that is because I was going to offer to do something that I knew she was going to need confidence in my character to do. So that's why I said it. And I said, I, I noticed that uh, you've got your hands pretty full and and uh, I overheard you want to try to go order and you're trying to calm the kids down. I said, if you'd like, I would either go stand in the line and wait for your order or I, I'll watch the children here for you if you'd like. And she looked at me and said, you've you got to be kidding. Uh, you, you'll help me? I said, well, sure I will. I said, I, I've had children. And, of course, not like these children. I wasn't going to tell her that. Uh, but I, I, I tried to bridge the gap and say, I, I kinda, you know, I, I understand what it's like to have children. And... Um, I said, uh, so if you'd like to go, I'll wait. Well, you know, it's 20 minutes. And uh, so I kind of exerted my firmness on the children by, okay, kids, I got a story. And so I started telling the story, and I started playing with the little toys they had, and, you know, making noises and stuff. And pretty soon they calmed down, and she comes back, and I'm still there. And she was just overwhelmed. She's like, thank you. My goodness, I could not have done this without you. I said, oh, this is not a problem. Have a nice day. And I left. Never saw her again. Three years later... I uh, get a letter in the mail from a woman who started coming to Evergreen. And she said, Mark, she said, uh, I've been coming to church. I love your church. I said, i got to tell you about my friend Mary. I want you to pray for my friend Mary. Two years ago, my friend Mary was in a McDonald's restaurant. And some guy uh, came up and helped her with her children. She never knew what his name was, what church he was from. My friend hates churches and she hates pastors in particular. So the other day I was talking with her and... Um, uh, actually, I must have told her my name because of the, how the story goes. She said, I was talking with her and I said, I go to this really neat church and, and Mark Darling is going to be starting a series. And my friend just stopped, gasped, Mark Darling. But he's the guy. He was the guy in the restaurant. That pastor. But I never knew what church he went to. You know, I've never liked churches. I've never liked pastors. But, but I liked him and I always wanted to try his church. Well, I don't know if she ever came. I don't know if anything ever became of it. But I only share that story because, you know what? Anybody in this room could have done that. It was nothing special at all. I didn't do anything special that any other person in this room could not have done in the name of Christ. 
That's what I mean by being helpful. I don't have uh, time to finish the rest of these. So um, I'll do it some other time. We'll have plenty of time in our rock future together. But I just want you to take making Christ attractive seriously. In the way that you groom yourself, in the way that you care about life, in your personal organization, in the way that you take care of your possessions, which are really God's, in the way that you do your job, in the way that you live with your roommates, always ask yourself, is Christ looking good on me today? Am I making Christ look good? Because remember, they're not going to meet Him. They're going to meet you. And if they meet you and come to Christ, then and only then will they get the privilege of meeting Him on loving terms. Otherwise, it won't be so exciting when they meet Him.